0: Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jerry Pitney and today I'm joined by attorney H.T. Moore who is a, a man who's incredibly active uh, in our community. Um, also uh, is one of our neighbors here at The Crossing. Works from one of the coolest or at least one of the most historic buildings in Paragold. Um, I discovered also that recently that you have been a guitarist slash vocalist in a bluegrass band and uh, your personal friends with Bill and Hillary Clinton. And so um, where where do we start? Tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are today, where you come from, all that good stuff. Well,
1: I'm not a native of Perigold. I've only been here for 47 years, as they say, <laughs> but I grew up in the area. I grew up in Walnut Ridge, uh, graduated from high school there in 1965. Uh, during the time that uh, I was growing up there, I was a typical uh, small-town, middle-aged family. uh had uh, there were four siblings. My dad was a a downtown merchant, he had a furniture store business. Mm-hmm. And so we were, uh, it wasn't quite Ozzie and Harriet, but it was uh, a very, very good, very good, uh, very good family situation growing up. Uh, so I went to school in Walnut Ridge, uh, was uh, active in various things there. I also, uh, when I was uh, 14, started working part-time for the Walnut Ridge paper, the Walnut Ridge Times mm-hmm. Dispatch. Uh, Initially, as a result of my being the scorekeeper for some very good championship baseball teams that Walt Ridge had in the early 60s, they won two state championships during those days, and that kind of led me into uh, the newspaper work and uh, uh, did that, say, all the way through high school and decided to uh, major in journalism at Arkansas State University where I attended. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but the most famous headline that I would ever be associated with and byline was Actually, something that happened my senior year. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just about this time is actually September eighteenth of nineteen sixty four. You may have heard the story, but the Beatles actually landed at the airport in Walnut Ridge. Absolutely, Bill, you know a little bit about that. Yeah, don't that, you? that was you. I covered the story. For I've Walnut read that Times article. Dispatch. Well, okay. Yeah. Yes. On their wall at the downtown. At the, at the, uh, at the, at the at Beatles Park. No, uh, there's one in inside Times Dispatch in Walnut Ridge, I believe. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote the article for the Times Dispatch. Yep. And, uh,
0: That's incredible. And so
1: it was, it was just one of those things. Uh, um, I, I would generally on, on Saturday mornings be working uh, on covering, writing my story from the football game the night before. And got a call uh, that morning from somebody who said, uh, did you know that the Beatles were here last night? And I said, no way. I said, where did you hear that? They said, well, Gene Matthews told me. And I won't say what my response to that was. <laughs> <laughs> Gene was uh, Gene was kind of a character He later went on uh, became very famous. He was uh, sheriff of Lawrence County during the uh, shootout, he lost his life in the shootout with Gordon Cole, who was the tax protester. That's uh, crazy, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting story in and of itself, and maybe one of these days you'll find somebody to tell you a little bit more about that situation. But I called Gene, and he said yes, and he uh, referred me to a couple of other people, and I called them, and Gene had actually acquired a, a couple of the Beatles interview, uh, not interviews, but their autographs and had given them to one of my classmates, Janet Raymer, for one. And, and I trusted Janet to be tell me the truth. And, and so I um, started pursuing the story that they you know might be coming back on Sunday. And I chased down the pilot of the plane who had flown in here. They, they landed again in Walnut Ridge because it was a charter plane. And the Walnut Ridge Air Base uh, was an old military base, and it was the only one in the area that could handle a plane that big. And after they landed here, then they took a small plane up to Missouri to a dude ranch owned by Reed Pigman, who was the owner of American Flyer Airlines at that time. From and he was the person from whom they had leased the plane for their charter trip. So they went up there for a couple of days. Uh, they had Saturday off before they flew to New York on Sunday for the uh, the last uh, stop on their their 1964 concert tour. And um, so. Started trying to chase down when they might come back and went down to what was at that time the Davy Crockett restaurant in the Alamo Court uh, on Highway 67 there in Walnut Ridge. Hmm. And uh, walked in and just looked around and, and the gentleman there in a white shirt and a tie on Saturday morning stuck out like a sore thumb. So I went up and just asked him, I said, are you you the pilot for the Beatles plane? And he just laughed and said, I might be. And I thought for sure he was. So we went on and had a conversation. And he wouldn't tell me specifically when they were coming back. But finally, I kind of, you know, we hit it off. And as we talked on, he said, well, he said, I can't tell you when you're coming back. He said, but you might want to skip church Sunday morning, Hmm. which was always a point of contention in our house because I grew up in a household where every time the church doors were open, we were there. <laughs> you definitely weren't supposed to miss for the Beatles, right? Right. And so, uh, but my, my father was let's say a local businessman. He did business with the Times Dispatch and whatever. And he said, "Well, I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said if you'll go to Sunday school, we'll let you skip church, and <laughs> said hopefully you'll be able to catch him." And and I got there really just a very short period of time before they actually landed. Really. And it was uh, it was a very short turnaround. It was one of those things that happened very quickly. Um, uh, the crowd was about two to three hundred people. Um, so the, the word had spread. The word bit. had spread. Oh, yeah. And of course, you got to remember, this is the days before mm-hmm. there was no, uh, nobody had a cell phone. Yeah, no social media. <laughs> no social media, which was probably good. And mm-hmm. it just spread by word of mouth. And enough enough people found out that there was a crowd there. But uh, the mayor of Walton Ridge at the time was a gentleman named Buddy Stewart, and uh, his Uh, his daughter Judy was a classmate of mine and and Buddy wanted to be sure he knew press would be there and whatever else that nothing untoward would happen while the Beatles were in Walnut Ridge and uh, so he kind of talked to the crowd beforehand and encouraged everybody to be polite which they were Uh, and um, so as as we waited there first everybody got real excited because a crop duster came in (laughs) it turned out to just be a a crop duster rather than the Beatles but and no one knew it at the time. There were two of the Beatles that flew back. Uh, the other two, uh, George and, and Ringo, did not fly back because they didn't like the ride in the small plane going up to Missouri. Uh, yeah. So they had driven back in in a uh, suburban, Chevrolet Suburban when Suburban was basically a big station wagon. And they were parked there. Oh, they were there. And people were just walking by. I mean, I I literally walked right by the car two or three times and didn't even think anything about it because everybody was waiting for the plane to come in. Wow. But the small plane came in. They got off. They, you know, walked through the crowd. They really didn't uh, do or say that much and got on the big plane. And um, there were some people that exchanged some stuff back and forth and and then left and and were gone. And so... uh, Several years later, Charles Knapp, who's now the mayor of Walnut Ridge, uh, along with the tourism committee over there, thought, you know, this is a moment of history. It was the only time the Beatles were ever in Walt- in Arkansas. They never were in Arkansas except for this one occasion, and they turned it into what's become the Beatles at the Ridge Festival, and with the statuary they have over there, and and uh, then added later to at the Guitar Walk to. Uh, to symbolize, you know, the the effect of rock and roll, the Highway 67 being the rock and roll highway, and all the entertainers who performed up and down Highway 67, and the from the high school gymnasiums to the to the honky tonks, you know, up yeah. in Newport and whatever. So, they they've turned it into something and really made something of it. And, and the improvements that have happened in, in downtown Walnut Ridge, I'm I'm proud of what's happened there and what the mayor's been able to do. If you look at Walnut Ridge now and where it was before they started that effort, uh, the town's a lot cleaner a lot more businesses, and the number of people who come through uh, just for the purpose of uh, seeing the, the, the Beatles uh, do, do the Beatles' walk with the, with the cutouts that they have there and to see, okay, this is where the Beatles actually, the only time they were in Arkansas was here. It's been amazing what they've been able to do with it.
0: Oh, yeah, and to know that you were able to play a little part in that. That's pretty awesome. So you were in journalism, and you, you're at ASU, um Catch me up from there. Like, did you continue to think, "Okay, like, this is gonna be my career path." Like, I'm gonna just
1: that was that was probably gonna be my career path. I was also uh, I'd gotten involved some even at a young age in politics, and uh, during the time I worked for the OCL of Times in the summers, I met a young lawyer there whose office was actually a walk up office over in the newspaper office named Bill Alexander. And Bill decided to run for Congress in '68, and I did the original photography for that campaign, and and mm. got involved with him in that campaign. And so I had a couple of fellowship offers to Missouri and Oklahoma, and also one at Ball State University. Uh, and I was thinking about going to graduate school, maybe with an emphasis in public relations rather than newspaper, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I took, uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I had an opportunity, uh, I'd been active in Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity at Arkansas State, Mm -hmm. and had a chance to go to work on on the Lambda Chi National Staff, which gave me a chance to travel. Uh, First, I've traveled the Midwest uh, part of the United States on college campuses the first semester, then the second semester, I traveled on the West Coast, so I got to see a lot of the country in a short period of time. And during that time, uh, Congressman Alexander called and offered me a job. He was—he had won the election. He was a freshman congressman, and I had had the commitment to, you know, for the year with Lambda Dakai. So he said, "Well, when you get through, um, you know, I've got a job waiting for you." And it turned out. Um, the uh, executive director of Lambica at the time, a gentleman named George Spazick who taught me more about life and business world and whatever else than anybody could have, pos- that I could have learned anywhere else. But uh-huh. George uh, had someone else who was wanting to come on the staff, and they had a, a, a chapter at the University of Maryland campus, which was a suburb of D.C., and said, hey, uh, i tell you what we'll do. If you'll go and stay on the Maryland campus six months, work with the chapter there as, as what they call a proctor, someone actually living in the fraternity house, uh, then, then you can go ahead and, and start your work in Washington earlier. So in, in March of uh, 1970, I went to Washington and started working for the congressman. Hmm. And uh, through that period of time, uh, just as uh, I was talking about, you know, what I was going to do about graduate school, and, and Bill Bill's the first one suggestion, why don't you just go to law school? He said, there's three law schools up here in D.C. or four law schools in D.C. said, you can, you can work, you can go to law school part-time. So I decided to do that and uh, was actually admitted to the American University in Washington and decided to put it off a year because in the meantime, I decided to become married to Lundaloo and we just recently celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. So that was a good decision. That's awesome. But uh, so I put it off a year and came back and uh, worked out of the Jonesboro field office uh, and started law school at the University of Memphis. And then again... uh, changes in times and circumstances. Um, The first district at the time that I went to work for the congressman was only 15 counties, but this was during the time that the population shift was starting to happen in Arkansas, and the first district had lost population, so it had to pick up counties to the west of what was the original first district, which went over as far as Stone, Cleburne, uh, Van Buren counties, those counties, and so uh, the congressman was going to be spending more time there, and also Independence County was one of those counties. And so uh, Linda Lou got a job offer in Little Rock, so I transferred to Little Rock Law School, the night school, hmm. and still worked um, uh, Still worked for the congressman. I, I, was a, I was a part-time law student. Unfortunately, a lot of that period of time, I was a sometimes law student. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it worked out uh, in order to do that, and so I did get a start in law.
0: That's fantastic. And so what year was that, did you say?
1: Well, I, I, uh, I, started, I started law school in the fall of 71. By um, the end of the spring semester of 73, I only had 31 hours, and I saw I was never going to you know, get finished. And so I talked to Bill and said, you know, I'd like to go to law school full time. He said, I understand. So I um, uh, set up my resignation from the staff for the end of May of that year and then started uh, summer school in June of 73, and then the fall of 73, transferred to Fayetteville. And uh, between June of 73 and December of 74, did uh, 53 hours of law school, which is not the best way to do it, but I was more interested in getting the the degree, and and I'd I'd really planned to go back into government work. I had job offers in D.C. to go back there, and also job offers in state government in Little Rock, but uh, again, it was another one of those little twists, and things changed and ended up in Paragould. Yeah, so how exactly did you end up in Paragould? Well, during the time I worked for the congressman, uh, Linda Lou was from Bible originally. Okay. Uh, and, of course, during the time I worked for the congressman, I worked all over northeast Arkansas. And Paragould was a town that interested me for a lot of reasons. It was between both of our parents' homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, while we were in, while I was in law school in Fayetteville, I became, we became house parents of the Lambda Chi House in, in, in Fayetteville. And there were like eight kids from Paragool to who were in the house. Mm-hmm. So we got to know those kids, and they were from all kinds of different backgrounds, but really were, were good kids, uh, good mm-hmm. students. Uh, all got along well, and it just showed me something about the city uh, that I thought I would like. Uh, so I, I contacted other people in town. Bill Fisher... Who, yeah, you know yeah, bill and yeah. and bill, bill uh and i grew up down the street from each other in Walnut ridge bill was older but i'd yeah, always known yeah. bill and I always admired bill and i talked to bill about it and he had nothing but good things to say about Paragould. and uh then one of the other kids in the house was steve block uh yeah. if you know jeff this is yeah. this is uh jeff's younger brother and uh steve came in one day and he had some paperwork from a firm which was then curse kathy and brown and uh was telling me about the firm and, and said, you know, I said, you ought to call these guys. They're, they're about to have an opening. And he knew that because he was from Perigold and heard about it some way. And uh, he knew a lot about the firm because his great-grandfather, Jefferson Davis Block, was the one who had started the law firm in 1889. Hmm. So uh, I followed up on it. Steve Clark was the director of placement at the university at that time. Steve and I had been classmates at Arkansas State, and he had gone directly into law school from ASU. Well, I did, say, those three years in between doing other things, and uh, Steve called uh, Gerald Brown, uh, later became Judge Gerald Brown, and told him I was interested, and Gerald called, and we arranged, he arranged an interview, and so we came uh, came over here, uh, and I interviewed and, and found out I'd passed the bar and started work a few days later.
0: Awesome. And what year was that when you... That was
1: 1975. Oh, uh, I, I, I My first day at work was, was March 31st in 1975. I was supposed to have actually started April 1st. That was the first day I was on the payroll, yeah. but I came a day early because I didn't want to start my legal career on April Fool's. <laughs> I don't blame you. When did you move into this? Uh, now your law
0: office, like I said, is right across the street from us, and an incredibly historic, historical building.
1: How long have you been there for? I've been there for 11 years now. Okay. Um, I tell people that uh, Art and Stroll, which we have every year in Paragould, cost me a lot of money in 2009 because I walked by the building several times and it was not in good shape. What at, was it at that point? At that point, uh, there was a title uh, office okay. and, mayor and okay. a real estate office and some other things. But I just thought, You know, something ought to be done with that building. It was on the National Register of Historic Places, and and I was looking uh, for uh, Ray Ray Goodwin and I were still practicing together, and uh, uh, I was looking for someplace different from where we were. And so uh, I I struck a deal to buy the building, and then the next year started renovating it and then moved in, as I say, in uh, late 2010, uh, actually closer to 2011. It was originally a bank, is that right? It was originally the National Bank of Commerce. Um, The National Bank of Commerce then later merged with First National Bank. Ironically, um, the original First National Bank had failed during the Great Depression. The National Bank of Commerce had survived the Great Depression. And so the charter under which First National Bank now operates was originally the National Bank of Commerce charter. And when the building was built in 1923, at that time, uh, Block and Kirsch had their law offices there up on the top floor where I have the two apartments mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And so J.D. Block and William F. Kirsch uh, had their office there. Then eventually Morris Cathy joined them there, then later Gerald Brown. And the law firm was in that, uh, that office, in that building from 1923 to 1964 when uh, the bank, uh, the new First National Bank that yep. is here now, uh, was built, and the bank left, and so they, they left and they moved across the street from the bank. Also, by that period of time, uh, there were starting to be issues of people having access to the to the offices because they were up on the top floor of the building as opposed to being out on the ground level. Whereas, as I guess, as the the some of the clientele of the law firm aged that they were wanting to have it easier for those people to be able to access the office because yeah. it became very difficult for people to go up two two flights of stairs sure. to get
0: to the office. Sure. Well, it is a gorgeous building. You've That's done a great job with
1: it. Well, thank you. We've been, we, we, are proud of it. And, uh, uh, we're, we're also very tickled to see since we decided to do it and, and make the effort, uh, uh to see the changes and a lot of other good changes have been very positive for Paragould. I mean, yes, Paragould looks, downtown Paragould looks a lot different from what it did at, at that time. And, and I just can't say enough good things about the, the main street organization and then other people who have, who have made investments downtown, Chris Bass and others who yes. have really made, made this, uh, made the downtown area what it is now and what, and I think it will continue to grow and yeah, get better. It seems
0: like the best is, is yet to come. And so it's definitely trending in the, in the right direction. Um, I'm curious about your your friendship with uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. At what point did you connect with them? How did that happen? And
1: tell me in on that. Again, Arkansas is a small state, and you can live in opposite ends of the state and get to know people and make friends with people. And in 1963, at a state student council convention, and that was in Texarkana, Arkansas. Um. I met a young man named Mac McCarty, and the next year at Arkansas Boy State, or Mac was elected governor of Boy State that year. He was a year ahead of me, so the next year when I was in Boy State as a as a camper, uh, Boy State uh, attendee, Mac was the reigning governor uh, of Boy State, and we hooked up, you know, there again, and. Uh, he introduced me to one of his best friends, a kid from Hope, Arkansas, well, actually Hot Springs, Arkansas by that time, named Bill Clinton. Bill had been the uh, one of the boys' state delegates. ever state got two, two delegates to yeah. what, what was called Boys' Nation at that time. Yes. And they would go to Washington, D.C., and uh, it was during that period of time, that, that summer of 63, that you saw the famous picture of Bill Clinton meeting John F. Kennedy. Yes. And by the way, Bill, are you familiar with Boys' State? Yeah. Okay, so I
0: I had heard of it when I was in school, but didn't have just a ton of interest in it. I never pursued it. My wife and I just watched a documentary, incredible documentary, um, on Boys State. And they follow, actually, Boys State in Texas, like, a couple years ago. But in the opening scenes, it's showing these former, you know, famous people who are part of it. Bill Clinton, his picture's on there um, in Boys State. So.
1: Well, it, it was the the American Legion sponsored Boy State. It was a, it was a wonderful program. It was um, we got to go to the state capitol. You know, you ran for statewide offices, and it was it was uh, it was odd at that time. I I don't know why, but they were you were organized in cities and counties and political parties yeah. and whatever. So. Uh, they were getting people lined up to run for various things. and Unless you were a high school quarterback like uh, Mac McCarty had been and, and the guy who was elected, uh, uh, who, who was running for my, uh, my party's uh, candidate, he was a high school quarterback, a kid from, from Stuttgart. But the young man who won uh, the governor's race that year for Arkansas Boys State was a guy named Paul Revere from uh, Monticello, Arkansas. And ironically, Paul ended up working in Washington the same time that I did. He later, huh. uh, we became, we went to law school together, stayed great friends. He was later Secretary of State of the state of Arkansas. He's now in real estate development. But again, that was, that was a friendship that remains to this day of people that I met at Boy State. The, the other person that I met at Boy State that I've remained friends with, again, from a totally different background, was a guy named Mike Utley from Blyville, Arkansas. And I had, uh, I had taken my guitar uh, with me to, uh, uh, to Boy State thinking that, you know, we might get together a folk singing group. That was actually my music of choice rather than the Beatles at those at that time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I got the guitar, we might get together a folk singing group. And, and so for our talent competition and, and Mike said, well, said, you know, I was thinking about entering this and what are you gonna do? I'm going to play the piano. And so we were going by the the mess hall and there was a piano in there and he sat down and he sat down at the piano and started uh, playing. I thought, Hey, I'm not going to touch this. This guy <laughs> is really, really good. And, uh, if you, um, were to follow Mike Utley now, uh, you would find that he has been the musical conductor for Jimmy Buffett, his keyboard wow. player for years. And, and, he made a career out of it. Then. He made a career out of it. He did very well. Mike, Mike had planned to go to medical school and he was so good as a musician. He dropped out of college and started doing uh, doing sets, uh, studio sets in Nashville. And one thing led to the other. So I think he's been very happy with his career yeah, choice. I say so. So did you and Bill? Or did you
0: say y'all immediately hit it off, or just became?
1: We we hit it off uh, at that time, and then you know again everybody goes their separate ways, and then. Um, about the time I was getting ready to transfer to Fayetteville to Law School, he was getting out of Yale Law School, and he had decided to come back to Arkansas and uh, try to teach at one of the law schools. He'd interviewed at Little Rock and was also interviewing at Fayetteville, and while he was in Little Rock, we had a mutual friend named Paul Frey, and uh, Paul was related to my college roommate, Marion Meredith, and so Paul was in law school, and he said, hey, I've got this friend uh, who used to work for Senator Fulbright, who's graduating from law school. He's going to be here. said, he's going to you know, come back. He's going to be interested in politics. I want to be sure that you all meet. So we met at the old Minuteman down on Broadway in, in Little Rock. And so as soon as we got there, you know, it took about three questions. Okay, where do we know each other? And it was, of course, the McCarty Connection, and we talked about it. And so he ended up getting hired to teach at Fayetteville uh, at the same time I was going up there as a law student. Hmm. So when he ran for Congress in 1964, uh, or 74, I should say, uh, again, you're a young candidate, you don't have any money, and can't hire a PR firm or whatever, so he asked me to shoot photographs to use for his mm. uh, campaign, and, and so the original uh, campaign poster with him with the big bushy hair, and the newspaper ads with the big bushy hair, and whatever else, I took all of those photographs. Oh, wow, that's cool. And so we, uh, so I worked in that campaign for Congress, and then he lost that campaign to John Paul Hammerstein, but he ran a close enough race. He, he got some, a lot of statewide publicity. And in 1976, he decided to run for attorney general. But that time, I was here in Paragould, so I was his county coordinator here. So I'm, I'm one of the few people who worked in every one of his races from his first congressional race through all the others up to the races for president. Really? So you worked through all of them? Worked through all of them. I saw I was
0: in um, Oinky's Barbecue. i guess i think it was two weeks ago and i sit down to eat my pulled pork and there's a newspaper clipping in there bill um it's actually on it's like in the table you know they got the glass over it right and it's ht here with i believe your wife linda Linda, lou Lou and then uh uh, it was bill clinton and then I, i guess i can't remember who was with him but but ht was like hey this is actually became president, right? Yeah, this. this yeah, you're was, like, you're that, that was
1: that was actually in the White House. That was in the private quarters. they took taking the some House. ribs from Winkies. Oh, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> we used to. How take, did you? I want to know, like, how did you keep them good? Okay, what we would do is we uh, we every time I'd go up there, I'd get six to twelve racks of ribs. Okay, and uh, I'd call the airlines and tell them what I wanted to do and why I was going to do it, and they always cooperated. So they would keep a an overhead bin there, and we'd pick them up right before we'd leave to go to the airport. Okay. And, say, would, would take them up, and then um, uh, generally someone would meet us there and take us, and we'd deliver them, you know, to the White House. And so we had, we had orky ribs one night. And they up. stayed good? Oh, yeah.
0: That's awesome. See, that's what I was, I was like, I was afraid, like, you know, I would take in the ribs, and I'd be like, maybe they're not as good as they were if they were fresh. and like oh, no, no, they
1: just, they, they knew. And, of course, they had people on their staff that knew how to warm up anything. Yeah. The the uh, only thing about it, you'd wonder, what well, do they let? Just you know, do they eat anybody's food that come in? No, it has to, <laughs> it has to be tested by somebody. Yeah. And the member of the staff who worked in the in the, in the kitchen that that always tested the onky ribs always looked forward to us coming. Yeah. Because <laughs> he really liked the ribs. So he and, did like them. He, oh yeah yeah he really liked them and and uh, I jokingly you know one time I, I, we were talking about the ribs and whatever else. And I, I told him, I said, well, I guess I helped contribute to that heart attack you had several years ago <laughs> because of all the, all the ribs and stuff. But, uh, oh, he loved good barbecue. Yeah, man. And, uh, you know, growing up in Hot Springs, McClard's. Sure. and sure. He, he, he knew every good barbecue place there was all over all, all over Arkansas. But but it was, uh, yeah, we stayed up there with him on a couple of occasions. And so we we take ribs up and just have ribs. What in the world is it like to see one of your friends become the president of the United States of America? You know, it's an awesome experience. It's um, especially, you know, coming from a state like Arkansas that would probably have very few chances for this to happen um, and just kind of watching it as it evolved from the first part of the campaign and all the way through it and the various things that we encountered as volunteers out on the trail and whatever. It, it, but it, it, was a, it was a real sense of pride for a lot of people from Arkansas. Yeah. I, I remember the number of people from Arkansas who went to the Inaugurals. A lot of them necessarily hadn't been Clinton supporters, but they were, were proud of, of the fact that for the first time we had uh, an Arkansas U.S. president of the United States. And uh, it was, it was uh, it, you know, the odds of that happening and being able to do that uh, just are really, really rare, and I, I just felt very fortunate that I was one of those people that got to experience that. At what point did you think— He's going to actually get this thing. You know, um, a lot of people talk about, I, I was part of the Arkansas traveler group and, you know, they did, they, they came in third in New Hampshire and everybody called him the comeback kid at that point after Iowa. But I was part of the crew that worked, uh, the state of Georgia and, um, uh, uh Richard Threlkeld, who worked for CBS News and whatever, all these people, they then were in Little Rock all the time and, you know, the Capitol Hotel, and you get a chance to sit down and visit with them. And he he said, you know, looking back at what his volunteers did for him, he said, I think probably Georgia was as important a state as as any of them. Hmm. Georgia was a week before Super Tuesday. So it was the first, it was really the only primary, the major primary that was held on that, that March day. And Super Tuesday was the next week. And at the time of that race, there were still like eight people in the presidential race, Songus and several others. And Clinton uh, had received the endorsement of um, Zell Miller, who was the governor of Georgia. And, um, um, oh, buddy, I should be able to tell you, but one of the major congressmen from Georgia, he had gotten some good endorsements from people. And, and we went in there, say again and work the whole state. Uh, and he won a majority of the vote with eight people in the race and therefore got the vast majority of the, uh, the votes uh, out of the state of Georgia for, for the for the delegates to the Democratic National Convention. And that was such a big win that, that it really bolstered him into Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday he did well and from that point on it looked like he was going to get the nomination and uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, Ross Perot got in the race, so the race was split. Some of President Bush's mm-hmm. support, you know, fell off to Perot, mm-hmm. and so it was just it was just all the moons lined up right. But uh, Bill ran a great campaign. Um, he had good people working for him. A lot of people who had never really worked on a national campaign before, but they they understood. Uh, American people, you know, Carville was, James James Carville was one of the classic examples of somebody that really understood the everyday average American voter and what they were looking for and what their concerns were. And they were able to relate that. And of course, Bill was as good on the stump as anybody ever uh, yeah. existed and was good, uh, you know, one-on-one with people and working crowds and whatever. So i say it was the perfect storm. And um, what did you learn from, what, what do you think made him so likable? Because I've heard
0: from everybody that, like, if you... This is the way I've heard it explained. Um, people who have said they've had a chance to be in the room with him. Now, I don't know of anybody other than you that would say your friends. and you know Jimmy Lou said that she knew him just from the political <clears> realm. But people who have said they've been in the room with him, like he had the ability to make you feel like you were the most important person in the room
1: I at think, that moment. I is think that that's true? absolutely correct. And he, he also had a real ability to listen. And I've seen him have discussions sometimes almost heated discussions with people who was trying to convince hey I'm really right on this or you really need to look at my position and he really felt like if I could spend enough time with somebody um, I can I can convince them that that the position I'm taking is right and where they ought to consider it and this was always a problem Uh, I drove him a lot during the congressional campaign and then later during the gubernatorial campaigns early but he'd be in a situation and and we'd Keeping him on schedule was impossible. Really, and so you'd almost have to grab him by the collar and pull him out, and he'd get. To, Why did you pull me away from that person? If i had ten more minutes with him, I could, you know, <laughs> you know. And, and so then he'd get in the car and take a nap, and ten minutes later he'd wake up and say, "Why are we late?" You know, <laughs> so it was one of those type of situations. But he could, he could, he could relate to people. Uh, he had he had not been a person of means, uh, mm-hmm. growing up. It was not unusual. He'd be somewhere and, and he'd have to borrow a dollar from somebody to buy, you know, a Coke. Mm-hmm. He just wasn't a, a big into material things, but, but he, he also had an incredible memory and incredible way of remembering, remembering people. And, and I've heard this from people over and over again, as I traveled the various states that I did that, uh, and people who had gone to college with him and whatever else. And, and he would, the things he would remember about people is amazing. And I can give you an example from something here in Paragould. Uh, Tom and Teresa Kirk, uh, very best friends. I really miss Tommy. You know, I miss him every day. Mm-hmm. But they started, they got involved uh, with Clinton sometime after we did, and we, we made several trips together on their behalf and uh, some trips to Washington together. And, and uh, at the... I guess it was the fifth anniversary of the library dedication. Uh, we went to a lunch in the Little Rock, and he was there and was a speaker, and, and I was getting him to autograph our programs for us. And I said, this one's for Linda Lou and I, and he autographed it. And I said, this one's from Tom and Teresa. And he said, let me think. He said, Teresa spells her name T-H-E-R-E-S-A, doesn't she? Wow. So he remembered that type of detail about people of who were all friends. The all the people he's encountered. all the people and all the, all the you know. Wow. He remembered that she spelled her name with a T-H. I have a
0: story of a guy that um, I won't say, I don't think he'd mind me telling the story, but I won't say his name uh, just in case, but he he was uh, a custodian here in town at a local church. And he said that he ran into Bill Clinton, I guess whenever he was, I can't remember when it was, I think the first time he turned out for governor or something like that. And then he ran into him again, I think it was four or five years later in a totally different place. And he remembered his name and he just looked at him and said, Hey, you know, and said the guy's name and, you know, this guy wasn't involved in his political endeavors, any of that kind of stuff. It's just that photographic memory. But he truly cared about people. I've also heard others say, um, you know, Bill Fisher's one who said this about him, is that, you know, a lot of times you look at politicians and you think, oh, they're corrupt and they just, they don't care. They're just about themselves. And I've heard other people say, even those who are were maybe Republicans and consider the opposing side of, he was a man. If you got to know him, you realize he truly cared about the people.
1: Oh, he did, and and he his, you know, he that's one reason he kept on, you know, running for governor over and over again. He felt like he was doing some things that helped the state, doing some things that helped the state's image, uh, pushing education, some things of this nature that he thought were just essential for for Arkansas to, to to get higher in national rankings and whatever else. And some of those things that he did, they weren't popular at the time, but but you know, uh, he he thought this was the best thing to do for the state of Arkansas, and that's why he did it.
0: Yeah are y'all ever able to stay in touch? We are. So y'all still are able to stay in touch? Still in ta-
1: yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah.
0: That's great. Long-term friendship then.
1: Right. I've, I've got him in my cell phone is 42. That's yeah.
0: <laughs> that's all. That's awesome. Bill, you got anybody that famous in
1: your phone? No, but who's one through 41? <laughs> well, George Washington. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was number one.
0: That's fantastic. Well, that's, that's really cool. What, I'm curious, um, I think probably the last question um, I have about Clinton is, and I'm, I'm interested in this from a leadership standpoint because I'm just, as someone who's in leadership myself, I'm always trying to grow and learn from other people. From your perspective, what made him a good leader, a good president? Because I think looking back now, it's kind of like, you know, whenever you first come out of office, you have a lot of criticism, but then like the, the further out you get, the more people can look at a presidency objectively and it seems like I hear more and more people that look back and say, okay, that was a good presidency, like that was a good leader. Like what do you think made that so?
1: I think his ability to work with people and also keep people around him who had differing points of view and differing opinions so he could pull those from them. And I, I, I remember um, on one of my trips to the White House and, and Craig Smith, uh, who was on his staff, Craig from Arkansas, A good friend, but Craig's office mate, so to speak, was Sidney Blumenthal,
0: who
1: was a totally different perspective on everything. Mm -hmm. And their points of view and their backgrounds were different. Both of them were very bright. Both of them had, say again, different perspectives but he would draw from people with those totally different points of view, totally different perspectives, and try to pull the best out of out of out of all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that really benefited him. He um, um, caught some criticism early on because a lot of people thought he didn't have enough quote old time. Um, party leaders uh, around him in the White House. He had too many people that didn't necessarily have some White House experience, but he had more of those people there than, than you would you would believe otherwise, people that he had, friends of his who had worked for major congressmen, major senators, and whatever else, and had those contacts so he could have some of those relationships with those mm-hmm. people. But he, he would draw... He would listen to anybody's opinion on something, and and really, you know, give it consideration before he made a decision.
0: Well, that's changed a little bit, wouldn't you say?
1: Uh, I would say today? so.
0: Are you still involved in politics today? or Are you so kind of just disgusted with what it's become that you've removed I, yourself from it?
1: I've kind of taken a sabbatical. Uh, yeah, I, I did. Uh, I did enough years there and whatever else, and 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 it just. Uh, I guess the the twenty sixteen campaign um, uh, that I worked in some for Hillary uh, kind of soured me on that. That's um, that's when I first started seeing some of the real nastiness that we've seen. What do you think? Do you think social media is to blame for that? Oh, or I think social media is to blame for a lot of it, uh, but also, um, I think some of the people who personality wise have been involved in in, in the positions they've been in there. I think they're mean-spirited, and I think that has bled down. I think the fact that some people have been mean-spirited, uh, been almost bullies about the way they approach things and whatever, uh, I think people have mimicked that behavior, and uh, I, 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 would, I would find it very difficult to encourage, us, and this is awful because we, we need to have good people, get involved and be involved in politics uh, and public service. I, I think of it public service uh, more than politics. But there's a lot of people that I know now, a lot of friends that I know now, younger people or whatever else, just say, hey, I, I'm not going to put myself through that. I'm not going to put my family through that. Yeah. What they get exposed to if they decide to offer themselves for public office because it's tough. Yes, yes. It's tough sticking your chin out there, and, 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 and you're going to have – you've always – I mean, there's always been a certain nasty element uh, in politics. Uh, it goes back to Thomas Jefferson days, if, if, if you followed any of that. And so it's nothing new, but I think the extent to which it is and, and the extent now that people have – a forum because they can go on their computer. They can strike a few notes and a few keys. They don't have to look somebody in the eye and say something. Oh yeah, they can say anything they want yeah. to about anybody without impunity of whether that's true or not. And so what if somebody is uh, so what if I said something untrue about somebody? Yeah. Uh, make them prove it's not true. And so that 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 bothers me. That's that's my biggest uh, sure. that's my biggest fear as far as where we go from here as a country is the extent to which we're going to continue to uh, operate our politics at that level
0: is there anything we can do you think to change that like you have any <clears throat> do you have any hope that for the future like okay i think like, there's a way that we can turn the tide or get back to some sense of decency
1: oh there's got to be a way it's just figuring out what it is but again how do you how do you turn off the uh, how do you turn off the the flow of stuff that comes through social media that's really unrestricted, and i mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and all sure. that. But there also used to be some responsibility. The press would uh, police itself to some degree, but there's nobody that polices what's going on in social media. Really, yeah,
0: nobody trusts any resources anymore, right? I mean, that's the problem with even we're seeing it right now with the uh, the vaccine, right? Where people are just they're scared to death of, and you can go to. You, we, we've talked about this before, Bill. It's like you can basically find 10 to 15 to 20 resources to back whatever you believe. Sure. On the internet. And, sure. And you, you, you go find whatever you need to back your, you know, and now you're fighting for truth and you're trying to figure out what is truth, right? It's... It's,
1: it's tough, and you talking about that. I, I opened the office for seven Saturday mornings because it's right next to the farmers market. Sure, yep. And so you've done that for my family, so <laughs> my kids can use the restroom. <laughs> well, the Arkansas Methodist Medical Center they did a uh, you know they did seven vaccination clinics on Saturday mornings because people are going to be there, and some of the people as they came through, I was surprised they hadn't been vaccinated yet, and some of them they had good reasons, you know, they're both working spouses, and it was very hard to try to do during regular hours, even to get to get to the pharmacy to do it. So they were glad it was available on Saturday. But there were a couple of people that I talked to that said, "Well, I've just I'd heard so much, and I heard this, and I heard this, and the same old stuff about them injecting you with microchips and other oh, things yeah. that are just just totally off the wall." Yeah. And you know, wondering what's really in the vaccine, and I thought, man, you know, don't you remember when we all lined up and got our polio shots? You know, in the early fifties. Yeah. Uh, but there was no bad information on it at that time and also I could not believe that a health issue has been politicized to the extent oh it's it unbelievable has. and it's 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 really sad because it's 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 hurt a lot of people I mean I just I just recovered and I was fully vaccinated and I was uh got great care at you know the hospital here and my doctors here and 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 but because I was vaccinated, I stayed out of the hospital except yeah. for you know going in for the infusion. Sure, but the number of people who have really suffered and they say, "Now, boy, I wish I'd have gone in and gotten the vaccination." Uh, Talked to somebody today, I wish I'd gotten the vaccination and what they went through—six days in the hospital, yeah, still having lingering problems from it. But they, they, and they didn't go into the reasons why they didn't. They just said, "I didn't get it for all the wrong reasons." Yes, and so that's why I'm hoping that people will realize that this vaccination can help you. It can protect you. It can protect other people. And um, because we've got to beat this thing. If not, it's it's. Uh, – I'm afraid there's going to be another situation and we're going to have to go through this again unless, unless people will actually realize that, yeah, there's things out there that can help you avoid this and the things you can do to avoid it. And it's, it's not a political issue.
0: Yeah, you know, it's – people are, are really um – What I hear, at least, in the circles that I'm running with is people are scared because they're like, it's just so new, it's just so new, it's just so new. But my thought is, you know, for years we've heard people say, I've got cancer, they don't really know if they can do anything, but they're going to give me a new treatment at MD Anderson or whatever. And nobody ever batted an eye at it. Nobody ever said anything about, well, hang on now, that's new. And uh, so you're right, there has to be some sort of – there's some sort of – it's become so politicized. That there's this fear now attached to it of like, man, this this
1: thing's bad. And, and and we've got so much. Think of the resources we have now for testing that we didn't have years ago. Right. I mean, all of our technology, all of our scientific information, all the things that we can do to get something ready faster than it was at the time that, you know, the SOC vaccine was developed. It's it's night and day and the, and the number of things, the number of type of test groups that it can go through. And I've, I've had friends who were... Parts of those test groups for various uh, the various of the vaccines, and sure, it was a short period of time from the time they started till they get the vaccine ready, but they can compress so much work into such a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. It's just like how long did it used to take you to do a math problem when you had your pencil and your paper and you had to sharpen your pencil as opposed to picking up your computer and hitting a couple of buttons and getting the answer. So same thing. That same type of technology uh, can help develop these vaccines much more quickly than than we could years ago.
0: Yeah, well, we have such a problem with uh, leadership and authority, I think, now as a country. And maybe that's because of the lack of trust. I don't know what it is, but... um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how all of this unfolds. I'm interested, before we end, HT, and there's so much more I could talk to you about. and would love to have you on again. From your perspective, you've been in Paragould for how many years now? 47 years. 47 years. You've seen a lot probably change. Um, what is it that you still love about this city? And, and, and maybe kind of a part two question of that is, what is your hope for the next generation as far as how they engage the city?
1: I think one of the things I've liked about Paragould is we have really, really been lucky to have good leadership at the local level. Um, I Look, there's only been three mayors of the city in the 47 years I was here. Charlie Partlow was the mayor when, when I first came to town, and I got a chance to really get to know Charlie and work with him on some of the industrial development things that we did in the 90s. And then, of course, Mike Gaskell followed for 20-something years. And, and, of course, now Josh Agee. And that type of leadership and the way they've approached it and the way I think, again, the people who have served on the city council, the people who have served in county government and whatever, everybody's always kind of looked like, okay, we want to make Perigold a better place. And that has that has stayed consistently true uh, throughout the period of time uh, that I've been here is good leadership, and the fact that also Paragould did not have um, the social class system, so to speak, that you had in a lot of other areas in East Arkansas. You didn't have the uh, some places like in the Delta. You had people with huge sums of money, and they controlled everything mm. and what was going on. Paragould was always a place where. People could come in from outside and um, and become part of the community, and you couldn't really. Which is very true of you. That's yeah, 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 That's that's yeah. it. And, and say it's uh, uh, they. Uh, from the time I came here, I had a chance to become involved uh, in in civic stuff, church stuff, whatever else. It was like, okay, you don't you you pay your dues by doing a good job. Once you get you once you get a chance to do something, but. But it's not like some other places where unless you were a certain person from a certain family and whatever else, you were going to have trouble going. And say, like always been open for that. We've always had a broad range of different types of people in our our county government and our city government, and I think it's been good. It's been been an open city. Uh, It's been a a welcoming city for people who have come in from outside and a lot of the industrial jobs. Uh, I think a lot of people say, you know, they, they, re, they come here and they work here a while and they stay here and retire here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like people who play for the St. Louis Cardinals. They always <laughs> want to stay in St. Louis. That's right, man. Uh, but, I
0: keep holding out hope that Albert's going to come uh, back yeah, next year.
1: I, uh, I, I, I think there's still an outside chance that will happen. But, but, but Paragould's a good place. It's, got a, it's also had a, a good economic mixture. Yes, we have a strong agriculture base, a strong agricultural community. But it's also as with the industrial base has expanded, um, uh, people have chances for jobs of various types. You know, you got people working, and some of our factory jobs making sixty-five to eighty-five thousand dollars a year. You know, because, but they're highly, they're highly technical jobs and the jobs that people can do. So for that reason, I think we've kept a good workforce. Uh, we've 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 kept our crime down. Um, hmm. Just a lot of things that I think Paragould has done, right? Has it been perfect? No. But I I look at what Paragould's done as compared to so many other places. And we've also had um, the way we've approached growth, we've sometimes pumped the brakes a couple of times uh, on things, and I think that's been good because we haven't grown so fast we have, uh, we of course, we're always stretching You're always stretching your in, infrastructure to some degree, but we haven't stretched our infrastructure to the degree some other places have. Yeah. And so we haven't had some of the problems associated with that. Do we need more places for building lots in Perigold now? Yes. Do I think they'll find places for those. Yes. As long as people, as long as there's a, a need, I think people will figure out a way to, to deliver to that need. But again, I think the the mixture of good people, uh, people of good mind, uh, people who are friendly people, you know, I always say you did, it's been overplayed, it's a friendly city, but it always has been a friendly city. Mm. And you look at the number of people who have come in and decide, yeah, this is where I want to be. And Paragould also a town that people choose because a lot of people don't know about Paragould. Mm-hmm. I'm still amazed at the number of people who uh, as I travel the state and whatever else, think of Paragould as the same size of, of a Piggott or a Corning or a Walt Ridge because they used to be in that same kind of classification mm-hmm. uh, athletics-wise, and they, they have no idea that Paragould has, you know, two really large uh, school systems here now yeah. uh, plus the private schools that we have here. Yep. And it's just uh, it's a lot better place as people get here. Rex Nelson, he's fallen in love with Paragould over the years, and he mm-hmm. travels, and that's what he does with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He travels the state. Hmm. And he can tell you what's going on more about what's going on in the state of Arkansas than just about anybody I know. Hmm. But but he's he's Pergill's one of the places that he calls a shining light. Oh, that's cool.
0: That's awesome. That's uh that's why we we pulled you two at Ridge Boys in right. <laughs> Bill just now moved here. He got a house on Main Street. So okay, yeah. I, well, let's end here. What encouragement do you have for the next generation, or any word to to my group as you guys? you know, who have been so involved and have laid such a great foundation for us. Um, yeah, anything that you would just impart to us?
1: I would say give something back to the community. Find something that you like to do. If there's something you like to do, then there's, there's a committee, there's a board, there's a commission. If you're, if you're interested in, in sports and recreation or whatever else, go to the mayor and say, hey, I'm interested in that. I know something about it. I'd like to serve on the Parks and Recreation Commission. If, if you're, you know, interested in, in in airplanes, you know, go, go, you know, look, look for, look for, look for places where you can have something that you can offer and also do something. It's a lot easier to work on a public project if it's something that you enjoy doing and something you know about. And I think there's enough places in Paragould uh, for anybody, anybody can, if they want to, if they want to help somewhere, if they want to be part of the community, they can do so and they can pick where they're going to do it and, uh. And I think as long as we continue to have the volunteer help that we've always had here for years, is going to be okay.
0: Awesome. Well, that's a great place to end. H.T., thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed it.
1: Glad to do it.
0: All right. H.T. Moore has left the building. I should have asked him for Bill Clinton's number. I was about to say we should have had him share that contact with us. He showed me the contact. All I had to do was just click on it. And then we could have got the number. Maybe prank called him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hey Bill Clinton, you're on the you pre- you're on the paragol podcast. <laughs> oh man. We have that feature. We could have totally called him in.
0: Yeah. Let's we'll see if we can figure that out. Maybe if we get to two thousand reviews, we could okay. start doing something like that. Like we promise we <laughs> will do everything they we can. Pay attention to we us. have two people now, yeah, on a podcast <laughs> who are friends with Bill Clinton. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Hey, if you're still listening, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. I would encourage you to check us out on our different social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a website, paragolpodcast.com. You you can subscribe to our email list. And so um, if you can, by the way, also check us out on iTunes. Um, Just get in there, search Paragol Podcast, and then give us a five-star rating if you don't mind. Um, That's just a little way that you can help other people find us more quickly and learn about the great people living right here in this city. So as always, we really appreciate you tuning in until next time.